0: is the Ancient Way Session, October 2015, talk number five. So the essential practice that we are all doing from the very beginning to now and to the end is alert awareness, alert awareness perception of this moment with no story and no conclusion. So the alert awareness of this moment means that we touch and feel and experience the sensation of the body moving as it breathes. That we're aware of the eyes, the light. That we're aware of sound with no story, with no addition, with nothing extra. So the alert awareness... And while we're talking about many different aspects of practice, we're talking about many different types of practice, talking from many different people's voices, that common denominator is unfailing. So we've been begun touching a little bit on the Sutra of Complete Enlightenment and We'll continue uh, with that. But the state of mind that we are listening in is very important. It's the words are not so important, although this is a great sutra, and the words are grandiloquent, and the words are impressive, and the words speak in very uh, munificent terms about the, the grandeur of the Dharmakaya, the Dharma. But it's how we're listening that is most important. So, the first thing to do, of course, is to set, become aware of your own body, take some long, deep breaths, become centered. Bring yourself completely into this moment by touching the experience, hearing the typing, hearing the sound, feeling your body on the cushion. Now, all meditation is not, I am now focusing on that. I am here, and the typing sound is over there. We hear the sound where the sound is. We feel the body where the body is. We feel our hands where the hands are. So merge your awareness and the experience. You are not in your head. The sound is not in your ears. So You become stable and present, and then you turn your awareness awareness, hearing sound and sound, feeling body and body. So there's not two things. Now part of that is completely accepting. This is the experience. This is the sound. This is the silence. This is the sound. Silence. Completely accepting that the body feels as the body feels without evaluation, that sound is as it is without evaluation. Next, allow your awareness to expand so that if you're aware of the body, feel, as I've talked to many of you about, feel more of the body. Be an inclusive awareness so that you feel your knees and you hear the sound, of the typing, simultaneously. You feel your back and you hear the sound of the words simultaneously. You expand your mind. You might open your eyes and become aware of the whole room and hear sound all at the same time. It's not a task. It's not hard. It's simply a matter of opening the awareness. We can all hear sound and feel our knees. We can all see the floor and hear sound. They are happening simultaneously. So open your awareness to that simultaneous experience. And now we only experience things in one snippet, as it were, one clip, one instant. So as you anchor yourself in the sensory experience, don't add anything extra, just experience it, just snippet. Each tap of the typewriter key, a different instant. Now, with that state of mind, holding the mind present, large, unadorned, we now listen to the chapter on Samantabhadra Bahadra from the Sutra of Complete Enlightenment. Now, this sutra is such a wonderful sutra. We could take the first paragraph of the first chapter and we could go over that for the entire week. It's got enough juice in it. But, we're going to Touch. So, with a big mind, allow the words to flow over you, with great alertness, but without cogitation. The Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. Then the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra rose from his seat in the midst of the assembly, prostrated himself at the feet of the Buddha circled the Buddha three times to the right, knelt down, joined his palms, and said, O world-honored one of great compassion, for the multitude of bodhisattvas in the assembly, as well as for all sentient beings who cultivate the Mahayana in the Dharma-ending age. Please explain how they should practice, having heard about the pure realm of complete enlightenment. Out of great compassion. The Dharma is about compassion. The four Bodhisattva vows are about compassion. The Dharma is about loving kindness, about equanimity. It's not taught, it's not practiced in a way for the sake of a philosophy. It's that as we practice as our minds open the heart softens we become more inclusive how should they practice having heard about this pure realm of complete enlightenment At that time, the world-honored one said to the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra, Excellent, excellent virtuous man. For the benefit of the multitude of Bodhisattvas and sentient beings in the Dharma-ending age, you have asked about the expedient gradual stages of the Bodhisattva's practice of the Samadhi, in which all is seen to be like an illusion, which frees sentient beings from illusion. Listen attentively, and I shall explain it to you. Hearing this, Bodhisattva Samantabhadra was filled with joy and listened silently along with the assembly. Now, because time is always present, this silent assembly is the silent assembly that the Great Sutra of Complete Enlightenment is talking about. We are listening with the ears of Samantabhadra There's only this time. There's only this place. Everything else is a fantasy, an illusion. So the first place that we see the illusion of illusions is not to imagine that there's some other assembly, some other place, or that someone else is responsible for hearing and practicing. Continuing, virtuous man. All illusory projections of sentient beings arise from the wondrous mind of the Tathagata's complete enlightenment, just like flowers in the sky which come into existence from out of the sky. Now, we have all touched this place of complete enlightenment. And in a way, we can look at it a couple of different ways. We've talked about the the ground of being out of which all of us arise, out of which all thoughts arise, not a thing, and yet things just mysteriously appear over and over again, sounds mysteriously appear. Not some alien foreign thing that lightning bolt has to hit you in order for you to see it. In a way, it's so simple we overlook it. All illusory projections of sentient beings arise from the wondrous mind of the Tathagata's complete enlightenment, which means all of us right here, right now. We are rising from exactly the same place. We're rising spontaneously. And if we look at it from one vantage point, there is no cause to that arising, because there's only this moment. And in this moment, without a past, without a future, there's just arising, arising, arising. Enlightenment, just like flowers in the sky which come into existence from out of the sky. When the illusory flower vanishes, the nature of the sky is not marred. Likewise, the illusory mind of sentient beings relies upon the illusory cultivation for its existence. Extinction, excuse me. When all illusions are extinguished, the enlightened mind remains unmoved. As Hoban's poem yesterday from the Teragata the woman talked about how all of her body parts had degenerated, and yet the Dharma is unmoved. It's only unmoved because it's not a thing. If it were a thing, it would move. It would have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But because the Dharma is not a thing, it has no beginning, middle, and end. So, right here, right now, looking into the nature of your own mind, what is it that has no beginning, or middle, or end? This is something to be seen, or felt, or perceived, or become aware of, or become alert to. Right here. It's not some future thing. There is no future in this place. When the illusory flower vanishes, the nature of the sky is not marred. When your eyes close and the room disappears, your awareness is not marred. The source is not marred. Not lessened. Likewise, the illusory mind of sentient beings relies upon illusory cultivation for its extinction. When all illusions are extinguished, the enlightened mind remains unmoved. Speaking of enlightenment in contrast to illusion is itself an illusion, any illusion. To say that enlightenment exists is to not have any illusion left. However, to say that enlightenment does not exist is also no different. Therefore, the extinction of illusion is called the unmoving mind of enlightenment. You know, so many words for such a simple thing. Awareness does not come into being, awareness does not disappear, awareness does not belong to us. Awareness is simply awareness, awareness is not a thing. Awareness has no past. Awareness has no future. Awareness is not personal. Awareness has no location. It's not inside, outside, or in between. We don't have to, we can't make ourselves aware. We might turn our attention in a certain way. But awareness is a fundamental attribute of the nature of all things. So seeing that everything is passing through, and seeing that awareness that our consciousness itself is passing through, and seeing that with the mind that is passing through, we see all things passing through, Illusion, not illusion, illusion and illusion, illusion and not illusion, illusion, not illusion and illusion, any combination thereof. Virtuous man, all bodhisattvas and sentient beings in the Dharma-ending age, that's this age, the Kali Yuga, should separate themselves from all illusory projections and deluded realms. The Dharma Ending Age, uh, interestingly enough, this was written a thousand years ago. So the Dharma Ending Age has been going on for at least a thousand years. But in one sense, it's every moment is ending, every moment disappearing. And in one sense, nothing appears. So there never was a Dharma Beginning Age. Virtuous. Man, all with bodhisattvas and sentient beings in the Dharma-ending age should separate themselves from all illusory projections and deluded realms. However, when one clings fiercely to the mind that separates from all illusory projections and deluded realms, that mind should also be taken as an illusion, and one should separate oneself from it. Because this separation is an illusion, it is also to be separated. One should then be free from even this Separating from the illusion of separation. When there remains nothing to be separated from, all illusions are eliminated. When there remains nothing to be separated from, all illusions are eliminated. It's like rubbing two pieces of wood together to obtain fire. When the fire ignites and the wood simply bur- completely burns, the ashes fly away, the smoke vanishes. Using illusion to remedy illusion is just like this. And even though illusions are exhausted, one does not enter annihilation. Virtuous man, to know illusion is to depart from it, and there is no need to contrive expedient means. To depart from illusion is to be enlightened. There are no gradual steps. All bodhisattvas and sentient beings in the Dharma-ending age who practice accordingly will permanently Leave illusions behind. Again, virtuous man, to know illusion is to depart from it. To see something is an illusion. And the illusion is no longer an illusion. There is no need to contrive expedient means. Simply see. What is impermanent is impermanent. What is illusory is illusory. What has no foundation has having no foundation. What has no origin is having no origin. And we do that by complete alert attention. By the essential practice, alert, aware attention of now. All bodhisattvas and sentient beings in the Dharma ending age who practice accordingly will permanently leave illusions behind. The lotus sutra it says that if even a child on a beach piles up a pile of sand and nods his head in that direction this will assure his awakening because we've always been awakened and all we have to do is see illusion as illusion knowing as illusion Here we are in Sishin, alert, continuous awareness of your direct experience. And direct experience has qualities such as weight, temperature, light, tingling, change, motion, knowing. Some other qualities like presence. It does not have the quality of any story or interpretation. That's something we add on to everything. So if we're simply not adding any story, not adding anything on to our direct experience of our own body, then all that is left is our direct experience of our own perceptions. Now, As I mentioned earlier, when we have a sensation, for example, right now everyone can easily feel their feet and their legs. We feel our feet in our feet. We feel our feet in our feet. We feel our hands in our hands, our legs in our legs. We do not feel our feet in our ears. Occasionally, perhaps in the mouth. We feel things where they are. We are aware of things where they are. Sounds hear sounds. Because we're not aware of there's a sound out there and my awareness of it, my hearing of it is in here. It's one thing. And that one thing is heard right where it's heard. That is where the experience is. We can all know that. And so with our practice from the beginning to now, we start with this direct experience which we can feel easily and naturally. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. It does not take a lot of energy to feel your own hands. It does not take a lot of energy to hear the sounds. It does not take a lot of energy to know your breathing. The great way is not difficult. So we start with what is right there. Now, it is difficult to, to hold our attention moment after moment after moment. Be aware, alert, alert, alert. That does take a lot of energy, a lot of effort. But what are we efforting to be alert to? We're efforting to be alert to something that is so natural and easy, we couldn't possibly put any effort in it. And yet, it takes an enormous effort. And yet, being aware of your hands takes no effort whatsoever. So it's an interesting experience that To practice, to stay with our experience, takes both enormous effort, but no effort whatsoever. Now, if we are thinking that we are going to make something happen, I'm going to make myself feel my temperature in my hands. I'm going to make myself feel the pain in my knees. Then we have added a whole extra layer. We've had an illusory layer because you can feel the temperature in your hands and the pain in your knees, just like that. So to be aware with nothing extra is the foundation. Now, this foundation is the way koans work. So one of the expedient means that I've been using with a number of people is we talk about becoming aware of the subtle body, the subtle energy body. And there are different ways. You can look at the visual field, you can feel the kinesthetic field, you can feel the auditory field. You see that all the, the infinite number of pixelated uh, orgone droplets, whatever you want to call them, that is there. Okay. You feel that, you become aware of that. Everything is composed of many, many, many things. And if you begin to look at what it's composed of, you find it's composed of an infinite number of small percepts. So with koan practice, the whole first level of koan practice is, can I just see that everything is nothing but infinitely small percepts, which perceive themselves? that we can feel and one kind of way of looking at it, the, the subtle energy that permeates everything. Everything is composed of energy, in a way. And so rather than thinking about it, we go into the direct experience of it. The direct experience of Mu is feeling the whole snowball all at once. And it's all felt. Not in the head, it's all felt in moo. Snowball is felt in the snowball. Whole ball of awareness is felt in the whole ball of awareness. When I was, I used to think, when they talk about non duality, I think, okay, I've got a right hand, I've got a left hand. How in the world are these two things ever going to be non dual? It doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, on a relative level, right and left hand, they are two different things. But if we go down into this level of percept, into this level of what is the common denominator? What is the energetic flow before the mind has created left and right? You'll see there is no gap. So, all the beginning cons all go into there's no separation. There's no separation between me and a bamboo sign. There's no separation between me and a pile of mud. There's no separation between me and the hogs and the China, you know, it's all the same energetic field. We can have an idea about that, but to actually see it simply means we cannot be thinking. If we're thinking, hogs are in China and China is 6,000 miles away, da, 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 of course, that works. So we have to actually go into the direct experience of the undifferentiated, which means before the mind has decided this is the right hand this is the left hand, We go into the direct experience, alert awareness of the present. And it's going into the alert awareness of the present with nothing extra. And seeing what is common in all places and all times, what is unmoved, is in a way a little glimmer of the first basic cause. So where were your parents before you were born? were you before you were born of course who am I what is my essential truth so right here right now if we look at something without anything extra there's just the looking Now, if we have that experience of just the looking, just the hearing, just the, just the percepts, just the, and we see what the, the, the gritty material at the root is, we can see when we add on all the stories, we add on to it. Srinya says that if you see ultimate reality, it's harder than the hardest diamond. Cannot be scratched. Cannot be broken. Cannot be cracked. Cannot be damaged. It's more real than you wanted to have. Some indeed, because that comes and goes. That way. That's waves. That's function of mind. So when we're working on koans or working on any other practice, we start off with this direct perception, the experience. Now, if we're looking at something closely, we are never not aware of something. You know, we have this, this, in a way, stupid word in Buddhism called empty or void. But you never you can't see something that's empty. You may know the you may know the absence of something, you know. <clears throat> there's not a hard boiled egg in my hand. But you you can't see something that's not there. You can't, you know, if something's not there, there's nothing to perceive. But when we go into our perceptual experience, our alert, aware experience of the present moment, there is always alert, aware experience. There's always a tingling life energy. There's always um, spaciousness, boundlessness, whatever word you want to use. It's never a nothing. So when people come in and say, I want to see the emptiness of self, well, you know, there is no emptiness of self. If you want to see the, how I've grabbed a hold of some illusions and concretized them, well, then we can see that. <laughs> so as we are practicing, as we are sitting here, there is essentially fundamentally only awareness. And so we spend the whole first part of a retreat settling the mind, which is just settling the mind that's going, I like this, I don't like that, oh, look, this happened to me, oh, this might, this might be happening to me in the future, oh, this hurt me, oh, that felt good. Oh, you know, Just separating that mind out, watching all that stuff come up, noticing it as an illusion, coming down to what is real. And the hallmark of whenever we are caught, whenever we get, you know, start clunking, it's because we've got some fixed view. Whenever we are stuck and frustrated and angry and disappointed, it's a fixed view. The basic Dharma teaching of the second noble observation is that whenever our fixed ideas come into reality, there is friction. When we have some fixed idea that's different than the way things are, there is friction. And the more harder our fixed ideas are, the greater the friction, the hotter the fire, the more the suffering. At least one level looking at it. So we often have some fixed idea, wherever that happens to be held, that there is someplace better, someplace clearer, someplace easier, something to get, something to get rid of. I do it right, I'll get what I want. If I do it wrong, I won't get what I want. If I don't do anything at all, then I'll get what I want. Or we have a fixed idea that I am defective, or I am an angry person, or a bad person, or I'm a great person, or I'm a glorious person, or I'm a wise person. These are all just fixed ideas. Or I believe my conclusions about Session about Zen Buddhism, about my partner, about my job, I believe my conclusions. Those are all just fixed ideas. So, we, sitting here, alert awareness, the present moment means there's no history. There's no future. This is not an ultimate truth. Not an ultimate teaching, but it's a vital teaching, a vital place to explore. There is a, in the 10 Oxford pictures, there's one Oxford picture that's just an empty circle. Nothing, no forward, no back. Just awareness, just alert awareness. No past, no future. Just alert awareness, not even someone being alertly aware. And you know, as people are sitting in the teacher's seat, I mean that's we're trying to do the same thing. We're doing the same thing. Sitting there with no history. People come in, oh, I have no idea what your history is. My mind is completely gone with that. Some of you I know very well, and so I may have a little history of what we've been doing in Sishin. But you know, one person comes in, you're completely present, the next person comes in, the last person is completely gone, nothing lingering. Just right there, right there, right there. So this is the opportunity we have when we first start doing zazen. No conclusions, no past, no future. So let's, let's put all that into the medita- meditation package, because I'm talking about it. So as we've been doing this retreat, I encourage everybody to remember why you're here. Set your intention. intention is to awaken and may others benefit from that awakening, whatever your particular intention is. May I become enlightened and may that become a bodhisattva activity to benefit others, whatever your particular intention is. May I become calm and serene. and May others benefit from my calmness and clarity. And then secondly, we open ourselves to, Dan Brown likes to say, the gift waves of influence. That because everything has its origin in the same place, everything has its origin right here. Well, the gift waves of influence, the beneficent influence of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas also begins right here. So we just open up our own heart and say, anybody there? Okay, guys, if there's anybody there, I open my heart to you. Let it all come forth. It's an expedient means to turn ourselves in a particular direction. Now, some session, we've done a lot of this. But right here, right now, please scan through your body and to notice that you cannot find a person. You cannot find George or Georgina. Whatever your name is. That there is no, as I often say, no, humunculus in there. Some little operator that's, you know, working the gears. We scan through the body just to affirm, yeah can't find anybody. Yes, we have thoughts. Yes, we have feelings. Yes, we have body sensation. But there's no owner to it. So you open your mind. You set your intention. You scan through the body and say, who's the owner of all this? And then you turn your attention to awareness. Now, I've been emphasizing that people, become aware of the most inclusive, most inclusive awareness you can. So if you're aware of the nada sound, you become aware of the nada sound, and you hear the nada sound while you're feeling your knees. If you're aware of light in the room, you're aware of the light in the room while you feel your whole body. Or you feel your whole body, or you feel your hands and your feet. You have an inclusive awareness. You open yourself up. There is no self in there, but you open awareness up to the most inclusive awareness you can. It is not an efforting thing. You turn your attention to hands, there are hands. You turn your attention to walls, there are walls. You turn your attention to knees, there are knees. So you just simply become aware of the sound of typing, feeling of the floor. we do that right now and see that that awareness is changeless the content changes but awareness itself always present awareness Boundless. We cannot find an edge to it. We can find things, but if we look at awareness itself, it has no particular dimension. And so we hold our awareness with a large, alert awareness. Boundless. Now, in that awareness, of course, things come. There's breath. There are thoughts, emotions, a cough. And when we're coming from the place of alert awareness, there is no grabbing hold. We hear the bird. without trying to retain the sound. It did not come because he wanted it. It will not go because he wanted it. It's here right now. It will disappear. So in large awareness, Stuff arises with no grab, no clutching. The breath arises. We don't make ourselves breathe. in this spacious awareness, check and see if you have some fixed belief that if you practice, you'll get something special, or you have something you must overcome. or that there's something to do, that there's some special state to get, just check and see if you have a fixed belief of some inadequacy or incompleteness. And if you do. Simply note that and hold that in spacious awareness. We don't need to get rid of those. We just need to see illusion as illusion. You may have to do this a few times. As Dan likes to say, all strategies are empty upon arising, I figured out a strategy to make something happen, empty on arising, unfindable on arising, not a thing on arising, just a fixed idea which has no location. And you hold your, mal- your awareness. And also note the mind that tries to put things in a box. Oh, I understand this. Oh, I understand that. Tries to conceptualize. Illusory can't be found. By seeing all those as illusory, we do nothing. We don't even do nothing, because that is doing. We are simply alertly aware, without clutching, and letting our assumptions be seen as illusions, and we are present. Now, if you like, you turn your attention to this, the unbounded wholeness of that awareness, unbounded, simply aware. And all the things of the percepts are simply inside of awareness. Things of our body, coughs and things of that nature, they arise inside of awareness, inside of us. We're not outside of them. Awareness is, contains everything. So the rustling in the room is inside of your awareness. Now, with that awareness, the look and see, look with awareness at awareness, awareness at awareness, one plus one is one, awareness, no looker. Awareness is content in itself. The qualities of awareness, notice them. There's a luminosity. That's the nature of awareness. There's one whole. It's not parts. It's all present, tingling, alive. Awareness is not localized. All things (coughs) arise in it. Now, awareness is not stagnant because all things arise in it. And as we're sitting here with awareness, you hear the sound of typing and the sound of the voice and the sound of rustling. You feel your own breath. So all things arise in awareness. And awareness and all things are two sides of the same coin. Just awareness. Working at this level, in a way, the only quality we need to cultivate is curiosity. Hmm, look at that. Hmm, interesting. Now, this is not ultimate teaching. There's more more to go. But this particular place is a wonderful foundation so that when we see a tree coming out of the great mystery, We see a tree coming out of awareness. We see bamboo growing out of awareness. We see an ox coming out of awareness. We see land coming out of awareness. We see all those things coming out. That's the foundation of koan work. Koan work continually tries to encourage us one way or another to go back and back and back to this fundamental experience, understanding. And of course, that's just the beginning of koan practice. The master of koans, at least far in the in the, in the fifteen hundred year history of this that I'm most familiar with is Hakuin. Hakuin Zenji, the great Zen master in Japan in the seventeen hundreds, says he revi- he had a deep, deep, deep awakening, and he revived koan practice. It had been going on for hundreds of years, but he was the kind of contemporary revivifier of all koan practice. And he talks about um, the importance of taking this awareness the next step. He talks about the importance that we can't just be aware and see things arising. We also have to take it the next step. This is from his, uh, his book, Poison Blossoms from a Thicket of Thorns. Poison Blossoms from a Thicket of Thorns. In fact, the Buddha's essential teaching is this. I would rather you were reborn as a mangy old fox than for you to become a follower of the two vehicles. What that means is the two vehicles are, are, I'm going to get that. If I do this, I'll get that. If I purify my mind, I'll get awakened. So two vehicles means there's a split. I'd rather you be born as a mangy old fox than become a follower of the two vehicles. If by placing your trust in this false teaching, you sink below the level of a separating fox, what possible help can you be to others? Seeking the truth of nirvana by trying to sweep away suffering and its causes is like trying to flail the clouds and mist from the sky with a long pole. Seeking the truth of nirvana by trying to sweep away suffering and its causes is like trying to flail the clouds and the mist from the sky with a long pole. You keep sweeping until you grow old and die. Your suffering will continue for three lives, 60 long kalpas. And since throughout those rebirths, you will be unable to gain the strength that comes from Kinsho, you will be destined to move through a series of purposeless, empty lives and purposeless, empty deaths. He is not noted for subtlety. Or he's very subtle, but he's not noted for holding back. When we are holding things in awareness and we can actually touch the place of stillness, that is an entrance gate. All things arise from stillness, all things are nothing other than that. So there's more to practice with. He talks a lot in his teaching about people who try to hold their minds still, who who try to just become quiet, who try to just kind of rest in awareness. Resting in awareness is essential. Resting in awareness is vital. But being stuck on resting in awareness is sickness. So Hakuin talks, he takes exactly where we've led our practice to, and says, "Okay." well, that's great. You can't stay there. There is no place you can stay. There is no conclusion. There is no final thing. So he says, some of today's silent illumination zeniths, he usually refers to the Soto school. Some of today's silent illumination zeniths may have experienced a limited kinsho, such as the Pratyekabuddhas Buddhas achieved. Just a, a kind of uh, we we many people have had this kind of thing. We have a, a real glimpse, a genuine, a genuine, honest glimpse of something really fundamental. But it does not fill our body. It's not our. It doesn't fill our whole awareness. It's a, a glimpse. Something comes, it goes. We know some truth about it. Great, very, very vital. But it's not the end of practice. But then they attach mulishly to the truth they have grasped and are unable to proceed beyond it. They cling to an empty emptiness and deny the principle of cause and effect and future existence. And Gulamala and scorned the Buddha's disciple Shariputra, saying, you have no more wisdom than an earthworm buried in the mud. It gazes up and is unable to see a single thing. fully attained bodhisattva is not like that. He undergoes untold difficulties and suffering as he bores completely through the great way's profoundest source. But then he refuses to remain in the final abode of highest enlightenment. Instead, he investigates extensively through the sutras and the commentaries, through the works of the lesser and greater vehicles, accumulating an immeasurable store of superlative dharma assets, vigorously spurring forward the wheel of the four great vows. He works to, ex- to extend salvation to all sentient beings, endeavoring constantly to practice the great Dharma, the great Dharma giving, his efforts never faltering over limitless kalpas. Should even the great void itself end, his universal vow would never be exhausted. We come to Sushant to know what is fundamental. And we have to know that. That's where confidence comes. But there is nothing there that can be grabbed a hold of. And because it always is slipping away, is no thing, it always slips away. The only way we have any true, well, we have true confidence, but we also have faith. Faith because we can't put it in a box. We can't put it in a book. We can't say, I got it. It slips away. So, the confidence of our direct experience with the faith, that even though that experience might be um, passing, even though that understanding might not be really present there, it is still true. It is still the foundation of things. So we have confidence, we have faith, and then awareness has got to function. And it's got to function because we have seen there is that the the. Boundary between self and other is something we made up in our own mind. Just as I said right at the beginning, we hear sounds, right at sounds. We see sights, right at sights. And the one who hears them and sees them is your own experience. Nobody else digests food for you. Nobody else knows what it's like. Taste the taste of food in your mouth. Nobody else knows what your pain is like. So from the great boundless awareness, we have our particular unique individual expression of that. and That expression, because we are not separate, because we are not inside and everybody else is not outside, because there is one thing, which is the vital liveliness of awareness itself, the aspiration for freeing ourselves from suffering and liberation, and the aspiration for others to be free from suffering and liberation is exactly the same thing. No difference. And the manifestation of the Dharma, the manifestation of what we are called to do, is liberation not becoming liberated, seeing that all beings, all illusory beings, all beings that we have created, all things, have always been free. And yet we play in that particular realm to do our very best constantly to offer whatever way we can in our own inadequate way. Illusion, we start off seeing illusion as illusion we end up using illusion as illusion. We start off seeing illusion as illusion to, for freedom, and we end up using illusion as illusion for freedom. A nice story that Hakuin has here. In the Shotoku era, that's 1711 to 1715, that's the name of the, the emperor at the time. Okay. There was a priest in Edo who called himself Zenkai. He is said to have been a nephew of Butcho Rojan.
1: He began his Zen
0: practice at the age of 23 and experienced kinsho, seeing into the oneness of things. Unfortunately, however, he never learned about post-satori practice. Attached to the understanding he had attained, he continued practicing withered tree sitting. You know, just less and less and less and less and less. There's a whole series of ascetic practices where you disengage from the world. But he lamented how difficult it was for him to control the workings of his mind. He decided to enter the mountains of Kumano on the Key Peninsula, cut himself off from the outside world, and devote himself to to an austere training regimen. It is a thousand pities that because a student remains ignorant of the practice that continues after Satori, he will delight in immersing himself in the pure existence of this kind cut off from the world. Engaged in such profitless, silent meditation, he focuses intently on ridding his mind of thoughts and attaining a state of no mind, constantly sweeping thoughts from his mind and doing everything he can to keep it empty and pure. For 40 years, Zenkai continued to reside in the hermitage he built.
1: With his growing age, his
0: resolve began to falter. He kept it up for 40 years. Amazing. His heart grew heavy. You know, the, what will keep something like that going is suffering. If you have enough suffering and you cannot rest, then it just always, always burns at you. If you can really get comfortable, it's easy to just wander off. So I'm sure this guy was not a happy camper. <laughs> you know? he was probably, there was something there that just kept him burning for 40 years. It wasn't, wasn't that he was having a great time. Engaged in this profitless silent meditation, he focuses intently on ridding his mind of thoughts and attaining a state of no mind, constantly sweeping thoughts from his mind and doing everything he can to keep it empty and pure. His heart began to grow weary. He found that the more he tried to sweep thoughts from his mind, the more confused his mind became. We all know this one, right? The more we try to, conf- to sweep thoughts from our mind, the more confused we become, the harder we try the more frustrated we become. That's why we have to do the practice that does not require trying. You have to feel your hands with your hands. The trying is continuously remembering to do that. But it's not trying to do something. It's trying to be continuously aware. But if we're trying to make a certain state, oh, yes, a big, quiet mind, oh, a spacious mind, oh, a relaxed mind, oh, a happy mind we'll find the more we try to do that, the more impediments arise. And before we know it, it's roiling in dissatisfaction. His heart grew weary. He found that the more he tried to sweep thoughts from his mind, the more confused his mind became. Although having lived to a considerable age as a Buddhist priest, as death approached, his fears of the suffering that lay ahead in the next world remained. He began quietly to recite the Nimbutsu, Namo Aminibutsu. When the time... When, in time, he came to regard this as rather a roundaboutish way of reaching awakening, he started repeating his own name instead, Zenkai, Zenkai, over and over. You, you if you encounter that state of mind, you understand that. When he had original, attain, when he had the original attainment, he had experienced as a young man. Excuse me. Where had the original attainment he had experienced as a young man gone? Now his nights were plagued by bad dreams his days tormented by troubling thoughts. One priest, feeling pity for him, said, why don't you go to see Master Hakawan?" With considerable difficulty owing to his great age, the priest made his way to my temple in Suriga and earnestly entreated an interview. The monk who received him came to my chambers with a smile on his face. A grubby old priest, with a broken-down old pilgrim's case on his back just showed up. His hair is tangled like mugwort ball, and he has a filthy face, and his robe and sedge hat hatter and tatters. He requested an interview with you in a gruff accent. Will you see him? I said, tell him I'm sick. Give him something to eat and send him on his way. Then I heard a voice shouting loudly from outside the gate. I'm an old man. I'm over 80 years old. I've had a long trip to come see you. Are you going to pretend you're sick and just send me away? Where's your compassion? I had little choice but to grant his request. He came to my chambers. He says, "I've suffered years from Zen sickness. Please, in your great compassion, do something to, for me. Help me." <coughs> now, this is a, a priest, so he knows about Bodhidharma's pacifying mind koan, so. So he, he's, you know, he, he knows about that koan. Bodhidharma says, bring me your mind. Wiko can't find his mind. He says, oh, there I pacified it. So he knows that this, this is coming. So Hakuin says, tell me about your sickness. What is it like? I'm troubled by thoughts in the daytime. At night I have bad dreams. Do you know what is having these troubling thoughts, I asked. Stop, please, I can't bear to think about emptiness, he said. What's wrong with thinking about emptiness, I asked. If a person attaches to emptiness, he will surely fall into hell. Come a little closer. I'm going to free you from your suffering. Now, you all know that in some of those stories, it comes closer and they go, whack. <laughs> Say, you know, it's right here. You know, your head is right there. You're, but that's not the case here. Come a little closer. I'm going to free you from your suffering, Huckawin says. I'm certainly glad to hear that, he said. And he drew toward me. Do you know how many hells exist for someone attached to emptiness, I asked him. No, I don't know that, he said. There are 86. And I want you to go down into hell right now and distribute yourself among all. 86. I want you to go into hell right now. Wordless, the priest stared, pie-eyed at me. Pie-eyed usually means, it's an old term, meaning drunk, actually. I'm not sure that's quite what it means here. And said, Come on, get down there into them. Priests are supposed to save you from hell. What kind of teacher would you be to try to send a student there? He cried. Get down there and explore those hells one by one. There's not a single hell I haven't fallen into. So here's a guy who practiced for 40 years trying to get away from something, trying to avoid something, trying to find something. 40 years, It's the two vehicles they mean by the two vehicles. I'm here, and it's there. I will get it. I will get it. I will try really hard. 40 years, he must have been very desperate. And Now Hakuin says, don't avoid anything. Don't even avoid your own suffering. Don't even avoid the hellish situation. Don't avoid anything. Jump right in right now jump right in and of course he's asking him to go right into the hardest darkest places of his own mind right there that which he's been avoiding for 40 years that which has been driving him for 40 years his own pain go right there rakuin says <clears throat> There's not a single hell I haven't fallen into. The old man abruptly prostrated himself before me, his eyes filled with tears. What a great and wonderful teacher you are, Master Hawkwen," he said. Your compassion has liberated me, allowed me to break completely free from my delusions. I feel as though I have suddenly awakened from a terrible dream. There's no way you can describe the joy I now feel. He prostrated himself some 20 or 30 times, laughing and crying all the while. He then left and returned to the guest quarters, latched the door shut, and went to sleep. The next morning, Zenke approached me with a broad smile on his face. I asked him whether he'd had any bad dreams during the night. I haven't enjoyed a sound sleep for over 40 years, he said, but last night I slept like a log. The difference between a mediocre physician who always doles out the same medicine to his patients and a great one who prescribes described as a purgative at just the right time. If you had not applied that purgative just when you did, how could you have saved me from that terrible sickness? So, of course, what Hakowin said is don't run from your own mind. Don't cause a split in your own being by rejecting some part of you By rejecting some concern. Embrace it all. It's all there. It's all at once. It's all there. Just like our body lives all at once, our psyche all at once. When he finished speaking, he performed I don't know how many prostrations before me. I myself was overcome with joy. I spelled out to him in slow, deliberate terms the importance of practice that comes after satori. I also gave him a piece of paper inscribed with the four universal vows. He came to me a few days later, made his parting vows, and with a mixed feeling of joy and sorrow, went on his way. From Shorinji, he traveled to Edo, and he took up residence in a hermitage. He formed the habit of facing toward the west, the direction of my temple, making vows how fortunate I was to encounter a venerable priest who pushed me down into the great hells. I trod the comric roots, tying me to birth and death into the dust. I kicked over the mill, churning out evil passions in that old den, and I attained the wonderful joy and peace of great deliverance. Yet, if I become satisfied with this, I'll fall right back into hell." Hakkowen says, How wonderful that old priest's great mercy and compassion was, teaching me about post-satori training and the four universal vows. How wonderful the wheel of the four vows, which smashes the perverse notion that death is the end of things. Its virtue surpasses all the secrets of the three worlds. The trajectory that we have just outlined of present alert awareness, letting go of fixed views, all-inclusive awareness, all-inclusive awareness of self and other, the one awareness of one thing, and then the manifestation of that truth in the four Bodhisattva vows. Without this last part, without these vows, being at the core. Without these vows and their ever deeper calling, all that goes before becomes stagnant. So let's now recite the four Bodhisattvas.